Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. We're going to begin, as we did last week, with a text. Uh, We're not going to take it apart exegetically, expositionally this morning. That's our our normal diet of preaching here. But through this series, what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at texts and exploring a particular doctrine. And today in our series, we believe we are, as I said before, covering that probably most elementary, basic, foundational principle of who we are as Christians, the doctrine of God. And so our sermon today is simply entitled, We Believe in God. If you could do like a Sunday school answer-themed sermon series, this is it. Isn't it last week? We believe in the Bible. We believe in God. Next week, we believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. But it does us well sometimes to take a step back, to pause, and to reconsider these foundational basic principles of our faith, these doctrines that are the foundation and the bedrock of who we are as Christians. And sometimes it helps us to correct our own thinking. Uh, we, we like to listen to our culture and our society or maybe a popular preacher or teacher or a book or something that we've read that has subtly changed in an unbiblical way our view of God or his truth or the gospel. And sometimes we go back to these basics, we go back to the foundations, we are reminded of what the truth is. And maybe that's going to be the case for many of you here today, but maybe for uh, most of us it's just going to be a refreshing time rehearsing what we already know about our great God and Father. You say, well, we believe in God. Of course we do. We're a church, after all. I'm a Christian, after all. We believe in God. But what do we mean by God? More importantly, who do we mean by God? A.W. Tozer, famous author, uh, I think this comes from his book, A Knowledge of the Holy, The Knowledge of the Holy, said this, and if I've ever talked about the doctrine of God, I'm always going to begin with this quote because it just captures everything. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. As we came into church today, as we began to pray and sing, and you saw the word God, you hear the word God, you hear the phrase, we believe in God, what comes into your mind when we say and we speak the name of God is the most important thing about you. And so it's incredibly important also that what you think when you think of God is true. And wouldn't you agree that if we're going to base our eternity on our thoughts and our opinions and our convictions about who God is and what God has done, it might ought to be true or it's of no use to us. And so it's not enough to come into a place like this or to live your life and to say a phrase like, I believe in God. That's not far enough. That's not good enough because you have to also answer the question, which God? Who is God? What is God? And Jesus was talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 and verse 22. He was confronting her about their worship not at the temple, but at another temple that they erected in Israel, not the temple in Jerusalem. And he says, you Sumerians worship what you do not know. Uninformed, ignorant worship. And you say, well, what's the harm in that? Shouldn't we just worship how we feel? Shouldn't we just worship what we you know, grasp to this point. It doesn't really matter about the ins and the nows of who God is and what God has done in theology and doctrine and, and biblical principles and all that. Just worship what we know. Just worship what we think. And Jesus says, no, that's actually worshiping what you don't know. And it's not harmless to worship what you don't know. Listen, this morning, it's actually idolatry to worship what you do not know. Now, of course, the world doesn't care. The, the worldview that is out there in society is that God is what you think God is. Whatever you feel, whatever you imagine, whatever you think. In fact, you ask people, who is God, what is God? Nine times out of ten, if not more, they're going to answer beginning that with, 
I just think, I just feel, my opinion, I've always heard. And so they make themselves the authority to build a God in their own image that ends up just being an idol. But I want you to hear me this morning. How often do we do the same thing, even as supposed Bible-believing Christians? We set up our opinions, our feelings, our thoughts, our education even, over the truth of Scripture. And so we begin to dictate to God who he is or who we think he should be. And we worship that God, which ends up just being a false God, an idol. And so the question falls to you this morning, Christians, Bible-believing, God-fearing Christians. What or who do you perceive God to be? Why do you think that? And how would you know? Let's look briefly at Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 12. I'm going to read through verse 26. And again, this is just going to kind of be a thematic opening for our sermon this morning, our time in the Word, just to bring us face to face with God's glory and His majesty. Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would suffice for fuel, would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken me, says God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power. Not one is missing. See, the majesty and the power and the glory of God is recorded here by Isaiah. There's one big idea here. There is one true and living God. And he will not share his worship or his glory with idols. Whether that's these graven images that were made of gold and silver and wood, or the images we make in our own minds and our own hearts of who we think God should be. God will not share his glory with those idols. The reformer John Calvin said that human, uh, human, the human mind, the human heart, is a perpetual factory of idols. We just go on making idol after idol after idol after idol. Romans 1.25, Paul captures this when he says, We see all creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, but rather than worshiping the creator, Paul says we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Way back at the beginning of time in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, how did Satan first tempt Adam and Eve? He said, He knows, God knows when you eat the fruit, you will be like God. From the very beginning, our problem has always been idolatry. Whether carving images to worship and serve or simply worshiping and serving ourselves, we are idol factories. 
unless by God's grace we're informed of who he is and what he has done. And so this morning the question is, will we be people that are made in God's image to worship and serve him? Or will we be, as Jonathan Edwards put, uh, taking God into the hands of angry sinners and making him in our own image? Number one today, just some short principles of who God is. Number one, very simply, God is one. Baptist faith and message starts this way. The Bible begins this way. Biblical theism starts here, that God is one. There is only one true and living God. Back in Genesis, the creation narrative in Genesis 1 through 2 stands out against all the other surrounding, at that time, creation myths that would have existed in Persia or Babylon or later Rome. Whatever the false gods and the false ideologies were, they had their own creation myth. And it usually included many gods conspiring and planning and fighting each other to make the world as they wanted it and even engaging in relationships with one another to populate the world. And so we have this very materialistic false sense of where creation comes from. And into all that comes Genesis 1 through 2 that says, no, there weren't multiple gods. There was no relationship between the gods. There's no fighting. There's no conspiring. There's simply one true and living God who created all things as they are with simply his word. Deuteronomy 6.4 is the foundation of Israel's faith, the foundation of our faith. Hear, O Israel, you know it, the Lord is one. Yahweh, our living, true God, is one. In fact, in those very names of God in the Old Testament, we have that laid out for us, don't we? When we call God the living God, the living God, El Kayim, the living God, it means there is no other God who is actually living. There is no other true God. There's no other God who really exists. There's only one living God. When the Old Testament speaks of God as El Elyon, or the Most High God, there is no God that is above him. There's no so-called God, no idol, nothing that can compare to him. As Isaiah reminded us, who then shall you compare him to, says the Lord. He is the living, true, only living, only true, only exalted God. And everything else is just a worthless idol. Again, Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5 through 6, in this grand central section of Isaiah where he praises the Lord for who he is, we hear this vision from the Lord. I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. God says in no uncertain terms, there is no other God beside me. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, after the people of Israel had been released from captivity, brought through part of the wilderness, crossed the Red Sea, they begin to sing a song to God. Contrasting to the gods of Egypt and all the false gods of Canaan to where they're going, we see Moses via the people singing this song of praise to God, to which they say, Who is like you among the gods? Who is a God like you, Yahweh, among the gods? that can split seas and bring plagues down upon the people of Egypt and free these countless multitudes from slavery. Who is like you among the gods? And the rhetorical answer is there is no one like him among the so-called gods. This is the most foundational, basic principle of who we are. But we have to start here, don't we? Because this is where false teachers and false religions go wrong. It begins here with the doctrine of God and who he is in his essence. And anything else, anyone else that claims that there is another God or multiple gods or other things that should be called gods, you can say that's a false teaching. Yesterday I went through Walmart. I went to pick up some chairs for... uh, Anna's first soccer game, we went and got some chairs real quick. We quickly realized we need to have a place to sit because it was going to last a lot longer than I thought. So we went to go get some chairs. I went to get some chairs. I had Lily, you know, toting her along in my hand. I came through the, one, uh, the left doors, and uh, there was a big booth there. Uh, learn lessons from the Bible. And it's sad that when we see those things, we immediately know what's going on here. And I got closer and closer, and, of course, to Jehovah's Witnesses and... Um, <laughs> 
I didn't have time to engage in a worthwhile conversation, so I quickly just took out my phone and said, smile, and (laughs) took a picture of the gentleman sitting there with the booth. Hey, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is God. And we're going to talk about the doctrine of Jesus next week. But that is where they go awry in their faith, is that Jesus is not the living and true God. He is some created being of God the Father whom they call Jehovah. And so you see from the very beginning, there's a problem in the teaching because there's a problem with the doctrine of God. With Mormonism, you have the Father who is a God, the Son who is a God, and the Spirit who is a God. And along with those three, you have the countless multitudes of Mormon men who hope to one day go on to become gods as well. And so from the very beginning, the foundational teaching of Mormonism is wrong because the doctrine of God is wrong. We have to start here. This is basic. This is foundational. And it's foundational for a reason. Not that we forget about it, but that it must be the bedrock of who we are and what we believe. Number two, God is personal. Eastern thought and a new age thinking has so encompassed even who we are, sometimes even as Christians, that we fail to see the differences sometimes. God is personal. God is a singular, personal being. You say, well, of course he is. Listen to what he's not. He is not an impersonal force. Star Wars or otherwise. He is not an impersonable, inanimate, sort of just ethereal power, energy that's out there. When people talk about speaking to the universe and the universe is doing this, and you, that's, that's nonsense. The universe is not God and God is not the universe. God is a personal, spiritual being. Not a force, not an energy, not some impersonal, divine blob that's just whatever you deem him to be. And when we read scripture, we see this, as is stated in our own statement of faith, that God is personal. He's intelligent. He has a capacity for logic, a capacity for understanding. There's self-awareness, there's self-consciousness, there's emotional knowledge, there's reasoning, there's planning. He has purposes, he has wills, he has thoughts. Listen, he has relationships. This is not just some divine cloud that empowers us to live our best life now. There's some impersonal force that's out there enabling us to do good and punishing us when we do bad. No, God is a personal, intelligent, conscious, conscious, knowledgeable, rational being. And all of that points us beyond just some impersonal force or power. God is able to relate. He's self-conscious, self-aware, communicative, responsive even. This is not the impersonal universe of modern spiritual thought. Listen, this is also not, not the unknowable higher power of deism. Higher power doesn't mean anything unless we say exactly who and what we're talking about. We're talking about the one true living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who created everything that is out of nothing and who reigns over all things. Just to say God, higher power, supreme being, force, whatever it is we say is not good enough. We must define further. And God is a personal being. Scripture reveals God as personal by his very nature. We look at the the doctrine of the Trinity. And again, over the next couple weeks, we're going to look at the doctrine of Jesus and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. There's personalities by nature. There's fellowship. There's communion. There's relationship in his very essence Those things exist. The creation of the angelic host tell us God is communicative. He talks. He relates. There's community even before there was creation. And then we see creation itself. The creation of man in the image of God. We see circles of relationship and communion and fellowship. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism Uh, The question goes like this, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to this, the chief end, the chief purpose of man, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To enjoy him. Not it, but to enjoy him. That's love. That's friendship. That's relationship. 
to know God not as just some higher power in the sky, but as friend, father, Lord. Perhaps the biggest question for you today is, do you know God in that way? He is knowable. That's part of this relational, personal thing. He is knowable. The question is, do you know him? Have you come face to face with his person and his nature in Scripture? Have you come into a relationship with him through his son, the full revelation of who he is as a person in the man, Jesus Christ? Your thoughts, your feelings, those thoughts of false religions and false teachings, the impersonal force and energy and universe, none of those things will suffice to help you know God. This is a high and glorious theology, sure, and I know this is a little heavy at the beginning this morning, but the root of it is very simple. You can know God, not just about him, and not just about some force or some energy or something. You can know God. He can be known. Number three, God is a spirit. To start and say that God is personal, to say that he is a personal God, is not to say that he is a human being. Again, in Mormonism, the teaching is that a man named Elohim lived on another planet and through faithfulness and obedience became God, and the planet that he was given to be God over is Earth. And so who we call God is actually just an exalted man named Elohim. And we can all do the same thing if we're good enough and faithful enough to Mormon teaching. So Brother Stan, Brother Zane, I, if we do good enough, we'd have to be Mormon first. If we do good enough, we can all become gods too. And they say God has a body of flesh and bones. And he is even right now, God in his essence, just an exalted man. But to say God is personal is not to say that he is a man. In fact, Scripture is clear that he is not a man. Maybe you've got the personal thing down today. You talk to God, you have a relationship with God, you relate to him, but maybe you still picture God as that, quote, big man upstairs. The boss man upstairs, right? The kind, old, gentle, wise Santa Claus that's up there in the clouds listening to what we say and what we ask for. We have to start here then. God is not a man. Now we have to clarify because in Scripture, God does use uh, masculine pronouns. We have to be clear about all this these days, don't we? God does use masculine pronouns to reveal Himself. I find it always interesting that in a culture and in a, a society where we have churches and denominations, mind you, fighting over God's personal pronouns and changing their prayer books and their Bibles to suit our kind of gender-inclusive, whatever-inclusive society, they're the first ones to say that you should let someone else tell you what their pronouns are. And I find it so interesting that when we read the Bible and God reveals his pronouns, they say, that's not good enough. We're going to make it gender-neutral. God has revealed himself, although he is not a human being, he has revealed himself using masculine pronouns. He, him, his, Father, Lord, Master, Son, God the Son, Brother, Jesus, our elder brother. He has chosen to use those terms about himself. So when I say God is not a man, I mean God is not a human being. He's not a person the way you and I are a person, a created person. God is spirit. Think about it by his very nature as being creator. By his very nature as being creator, he is the source of life. He is the source of creation. He is not the recipient of it. So he is not the receiver of light, but the giver of light. He is not the receiver of life, but he is the giver of life. He has no need of anyone to give him anything. That's what we read in Isaiah. Who has taught the Lord? Who can understand him? Who's contributed to him? Every Sunday, we, we cite uh, Romans eleven thirty six 36 in our doxology, from him to him, through him are all things to him, be glory forever. Just before that, there were the, these rhetorical questions. Who can understand the Lord? Who can know him? Who can plumb the depths of his knowledge? Who has given him understanding? 
God is creator. And by nature of being creator, he is outside of creation. He is no man. He is no creation. He is pure, eternal, perfect spirit. That's what Jesus said in John 4, 24. Again, in his dialogue with the woman at the well, she was confused about the physical place of worship. Jesus tells her in John 4, 24, God is spirit. He's not a man of flesh and bones where he dwells in this temple or that temple. God is spirit. And if you're going to worship God as spirit, you must worship him, Jesus says, in spirit and in truth. Numbers 23, 19. Moses tells the people, God is not a man. 1 Samuel 15, 29. God is not a man. Deuteronomy 4, 15. God reminds the people. You're going into this area where people have crafted images and idols and pictures of who and what they think the so-called gods look like. God reminds them in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Remember, when my glory appeared, you saw no form. Why does he say that to the people? So they don't suddenly think they need to go make an image of it. To make a temple and some graven image of what they saw. God says you didn't see a form. Why? Because there is no form. God is pure, eternal spirit. It's not simply that that kind of idolatry is foolish, though it is. It is. That's false worship, false gods. That kind of idolatry is stupid and foolish and ignorant. But the bigger point God makes is that he is not of creation. God is the creator. He's bigger than that. And that's good news for you here today. Isaiah, in another instance with the Lord, the Lord is telling him, look, these idols have arms and hands, but they can't do anything. These idols have ears, but they can't hear. They have eyes, but they can't see. You can make a God that suits your own image all day long with whatever parts and things you want to put on there, carve it up, put it up, and say that's God, but it's not. And God says that's actually very harmful to you because I am the God who does see. I am the God who can help. I am the God who does hear. I am the God who does speak. So it's a measurably good thing for us to have a God that we can't craft and carve and make with our hands. Because even if we were to craft ears and eyes and arms and hands and legs, they would be useless compared to our living, true, hearing, seeing, helping God, who is eternal, perfect spirit. Number four, God is simple. Now, we've gone through points one through three, and you say, this doesn't sound very simple. I read the Bible, it doesn't appear to me that God is a very simplistic thing. And that's not what I mean by simple. Not that he is simplistic. Not even that his nature and his person is easy to grasp. Listen, but his nature is simple. And what we mean by simple is simply this. God is not composed of parts. God is not composed of parts. I think sometimes we think we have the perfect amount of holiness and glory and majesty and maybe some grace and love and mercy. And, and, you know, this is us making our God. So a little bit of wrath, a little bit of justice, a little bit of holiness. We put all that together and there's God. Folks, that is a recipe. That is not the living God. God is not composed of a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of pixie dust. And there you have God. God is not made up of these building blocks. What did he say to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14? This is who I am. I am that I am. God is not made up of little parts and little recipe points that we can put together to make up who he is. A little bit of mercy, a little love, a little holiness, and there is God. Because, listen very carefully. He does not merely have love. He doesn't merely have light. He is not merely the owner of holiness and goodness and wrath. But those things 
We call his attributes, his characteristics. Those things are not things he simply has as God, but they are who he is as God. God is life. God is light. God is holiness. God is glory. God is majesty. And the only way, reason we have our brains to put around those concepts, majesty, glory, beauty, truth, goodness, is because there is a God who is those things. God simply, purely, eternally is. You can say it this way, and this is a little heady, I know, but I love it. God is pure isness. To be and to have existence and to have life means that there must be something who is life and who is consciousness and who is pure being. And that is God. I am that I am. Never becoming, never growing, never changing, never adapting, never learning. Pure, simple being. And all this comes down to who God is as holy. His holiness. We say that word a lot. We sing the song a lot. Holy, holy, holy. We're going to sing it at the end today. And it it might just pass your mind. He's perfect. He's sinless. He's pure. And all those things for sure are wrapped up in who he is as holy. But the word holy means distinct. Set apart. We talk about our holiness as Christians, our sanctification as we're growing in holiness. What are we talking about? That we're being set apart from the world and set apart for God. We're being distinguished. God in his very nature has no need to undergo this process of holiness. He is holy, 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 distinct, separate, other than us. When Isaiah sees his vision of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, we see the seraphim, the burning ones, these angelic beings with six wings. They fly with two. They cover their face with two. They cover their feet with the other two. And what do they call out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. If you ever read the little, it's not a little, the classic book by R.C. Sproul, The Holiness of God, he goes into this in detail. I encourage you to to go find that book and to read it. He reminds us that when you repeat things in Hebrew, it means something. Think of when Jesus in Aramaic would say, verily, verily, or amen, amen. And he repeated that as if to say, look, this is important. R.C. in his book talks about the pit that Joseph was thrown into in the book of Genesis and how it wasn't just a pit, but the Bible literally says it was a pit pit. It was a big old pit. And you always have these things repeated to draw emphasis, to draw importance, to say this is big, this is important, this emphasizes it. Sproul rightly points out that when we see God's attributes listed by the angels that are around his throne, they don't just say holy. They don't just say holy, holy, even. But they can't help but say holy, holy, holy is the Lord. No beginning. No end, unchanging, unmoving, eternal, timeless, spaceless being. And as we keep going, it becomes increasingly hard for us to grasp this, doesn't it? And, and here's, here's a little key for us. The, the more that our minds become blown by the nature and the person of God, it's kind of that paradox of the knowledge of God. The more that we grow in our knowledge of God, the more he seems so vastly unknowable and we will be trying and trying and trying for all eternity to grasp the magnitude and the holiness of God Isaiah gets it though in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5 what is his response he sees the Lord the place is filled with smoke these burning creatures appear before him saying this is the holy 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 God and how does Isaiah respond well, he doesn't immediately close his eyes and throw up his hands. I hate to tell you. That's an acceptable form of worship. Don't get me wrong. But Isaiah doesn't go into some ecstatic form of worship. What does Isaiah do? Isaiah 6, 5. Woe is me. 
for I am undone. Literally, I'm coming apart. I'm being disintegrated at my very core, Isaiah says. Why? Because I have seen the Lord. He is confronted with the absolute purity and holiness of God, and Isaiah can't stand it. How utterly backwards we have this in the world, and even in our churches, that we treat God so casually, so flippantly, so nonchalantly. Think about the songs we sing in many of our churches. And I'm not here to go on a diatribe on the worship wars. I like new music. I like old music. I like more gospel music than about anything. So you can ask the other pastors about my daily playlist in the office if it's even Christian. Just sometimes. I like it all. It's not about that. not about the style to me. It's about what we say about God. It's about what we say to him about who he is in himself and who he is to us. And so much of our common popular worship music is so trite and so flippant and so casual about who this holy God is. We could even say it's sometimes careless. And I would remind you this morning that if we would behold him for a second as Isaiah did, as the Old Testament prophets did, even as the New Testament apostles did, what would our reaction be? And how would it be any different than Isaiah? Woe is me. I'm coming apart at the seams because I'm in the presence of holiness. Calvin said there was a certain dread and terror by which holy men of God trembled before him. We have a God who is very domesticated, don't we? He fits in our little minds. He fits in our little pockets. And we take him out to use him for what we want him for. But he's generally pretty tame. And we can control him with our opinions and our thoughts and our feelings. Use him when we need him. Put him away when we don't need him. Doesn't demand much. Doesn't ask much. Doesn't expect much. And his only purpose is to do as you please. But today I pray that we will come face to face with this biblical, holy, righteous God. And because of our sinfulness this morning, we should tremble like Isaiah in the presence of holiness. And if that's not your understanding of who God is in his nature, And I caution you this morning that you may be worshiping an idol. You may be worshiping a God who's not a God at all. If holy men trembled in his presence, what should our response be? What possible out could there be for sinners like you and me if Isaiah pronounced a curse on himself? Good news today, number five. God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. John is telling us to love each other. And we ought to love each other. Why? Because God is love. Again, not simply that God has love, though he does. Not simply that he gives love, though he does. But that God is love. One of the very few flat out attribute statements in the Bible. God is blank. God is love. And what do we do with this? Because I've spent the better part of 10 minutes telling you about his holiness and his purity and his wrath and how we tremble before him and how even Isaiah trembled before him. How do we say that and then turn around and say, oh, but he's also loving and merciful and gracious. And for some, this is a troubling contradiction. And it has caused many, again, to go off the rails biblically into false teaching. You think of the Gnostics in the early church who said, no, the God of the Old Testament is mean and hateful and wrathful. The God of the New Testament is a different God altogether, and he's pretty kind and chill, and he loves us, and we're at peace with him. And that's the one we want to do with. We don't want to have anything to do with this. Now, I want to ask you how many times you've thought the same thing. 
That Old Testament God is pretty angry. And he's always punishing and smiting and plaguing and all kinds of things. And then we come to the New Testament, we have something like this. God is love. We say, what do we do with that? Is that a contradiction? Are these things that need to be reconciled in the person of God? I want to point you back to God's simplicity today. In his simplicity, God is not made up of equal parts or different parts, wrath, holiness, love, mercy, justice, and we just hope his love outweighs his holiness. That is not the God of Scripture. We have a God who is at once 100% completely and purely holy and righteous and perfect and wrathful as he is 100% perfectly love and grace and mercy. The Bible does not present us with the God of multiple personalities who shifts and changes on a whim. And no matter which side you fall over into the ditch, you wind up with an idol, don't you? If you have a God who is all wrath and all anger and all holiness and no mercy and no love and no grace, that's an idol. But if you land over here and you say, no, God is all love and all mercy and all grace and no condemnation and no wrath and no holiness and no anger, that too is an idol. The Bible presents us with a God who is absolutely pure holy and perfect and righteous, and he requires that of his creatures. But is that same holy God who from his holiness and from his purity and from his righteousness loves his creation, and he loves his creation in this way, that he sent his only begotten son, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 7. Although Isaiah was coming apart, although he had condemned himself rightly, God sends an angel in this prophetic vision with these hot coals, purifying, searing coals from the altar, places it on Isaiah's lips because he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I'm in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And so God touches this hot coal to his lips. And he says, your sins are atoned for. That which should have brought him immediate, sudden condemnation. He should have come apart at the seams. But God says, your sin is covered. Your sin is atoned for. God does not compromise his holiness and his purity. He upholds it even as he shows mercy. In his holiness, in his purity, God loves. There's no tension. There's no contradiction. He doesn't need us to help him reconcile these things about himself. And I want to point you to the biggest proof in all the scripture that this is true. The cross of the Lord Jesus. Because in that singular act, in that singular place, we see the righteous, holy, pure, justice, anger, condemnation, wrath, Hatred of God. And at the same time, we see the height and the breadth and the width, the depth and the height that is incomprehensible to us of his great love and mercy. We sing the hymn sometimes, here is love, vast as the ocean at the end of that second verse. Where God's love, or God's peace and perfect justice at the cross, his peace and perfect justice kiss a guilty world in love. Romans 5.8 says that this is how we know God loves us. That he sent his son while we were still sinners to die for us. Not compromising or lessening his standards of holiness, 
but exacting them on Jesus just as he then allows his love and his grace and his mercy and his peace to flow out to you in Christ. Now next week we'll talk about Jesus. That sounds great, doesn't it? We'll talk about Jesus next week. We will talk about the doctrine of God the Son next week, but you must understand today that if you're going to know God, you must know Jesus and vice versa. To know Jesus is to know God. This is knowing God. John 1.18 says, the, the apostle says that no one has ever seen God. How can we know him? We haven't seen him. The apostle says, though, the only God who is at the Father's right hand, he has revealed, manifested him to us. So this morning, if you're going to simply say, oh, I believe in God, Number one, do your thoughts about God flow from and agree with his revelation of himself in Scripture? And number two, have you found God in the person and work of the Lord Jesus? Whom Paul says, Colossians chapter 2 verse 9, is the fullness of deity in bodily form. He is the revelation of God to man. And if you haven't started with Jesus, you do not know God. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. And our culture And so many supposed liberal and moderate Christians have warped that into some statement of inclusion, of exclusion. That Jesus wants to keep people out. That's why he says, I'm the only way. Or we Christians want to keep people out. That's why we say Jesus is the only way. It's not exclusion at all. It's an invitation. Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary, once said, yeah, he's the only door. But he's the open door. This is not to exclude people from heaven, but to invite people to heaven through the one way to heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Many think Jesus, as we see in the New Testament, is a kinder, softer, gentler version of God who softens the blow, softens the judgment, not as harsh, changes things a little bit. That works until you come to Revelation. And in Revelation 19, we see Jesus... The same Jesus who gave himself for us and who bled for us and who lived among the poor and who came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, humble and lowly, now exalted, returning, not on a donkey, but a white horse, his eyes flaming with the wrath of God, a sword coming out of his mouth, and the author minces no words, with which he cuts down his enemies. And his robe is dipped and blood. Is that shocking to you? A different Jesus than what you have known? I'll tell you this morning, this is the same Jesus. This is the same Jesus. He is coming in judgment. He is coming to put an end to sin and wickedness. But he has not come yet. And until he does, his invitation is still, Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God is just, God is holy, God is righteous, God is pure, and he will punish sin. Need proof? Look to Jesus. God is love, God is grace, God is mercy, God is peace, and he will forgive those who turn to him. Need proof? Look to Jesus. This morning, maybe you've lost your wonder at God. Maybe you've become lost in the familiarity of it all. And there's a a casualness and a flippancy to which you approach God. I want to invite you this morning to rediscover the wonder and the awe of God. This holy one who sits enthroned in fire and glory, whose voice makes the earth to tremble, who is sovereign 
over the vast reaches of the universe and who is holy, 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 whose glory we see in Jesus, who gives himself for us so that we might know him. Author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 I gave you all the wrong verses back there, so don't, never mind that. I'll just cite it for you. <laughs> Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. The author of Hebrews here at the end of his letter says, Let us then offer God acceptable worship. And why should we offer God acceptable worship? Hebrews 12, 29. Because our God is a consuming fire. Do you believe in God? I believe in God. And I want every day for what I mean by that to be informed by Scripture, to be informed by truth, to be informed by Jesus. And that is the invitation to you today as we sing. I'm going to go down and sing with you uh, as, I, as we respond to our holy God. I'm going to sing with you. But if you need to talk, you need to pray, I'm here. Christians, as we sing, think about these words we're singing. Place yourself there in the temple, if you can, with Isaiah, beholding the holiness of God with your own eyes. And if you can get the words out, sing with joy, because you have a right to come before him with confidence because of the Lord Jesus. This morning, if you do not know God through Christ, maybe you've had a general spirituality I believe in God, I believe in a higher power. Oh yeah, God, Jesus, whatever it is. But you've never come into that personal knowledge of God through faith in Christ for yourself. That is the invitation for you today. To see the holiness of this God, to tremble at your sin, but then to turn to Jesus in faith and repentance and be welcomed in as his child. As we sing, you need to talk, you need to pray, I'll be here singing. You can catch me after service. We'll talk about what it means to be a Christian. Christians, let's worship and let's adore our God together. Would you stand as we pray and begin to sing? Thank you, God, for the revelation that you've given us of yourself in Scripture. And we thank you that with our frail minds and our limited language, we're able to at least put those words together, holy, holy, holy. And though what all that means and what all that entails might completely be beyond our grasp help us this morning to at least stand in awe and wonder at your majesty and your glory and your power and your sovereignty you are God alone there is none beside you God you are holy 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 we praise you we magnify you we glorify you in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.